Welcome to 10,000 More, the podcast that explores the topics of grief, mental health, love, and everything that intertwines that all together. I'm Ruby Falk, and whatever it is that brought you to me, I'm very grateful for it. and thank you for joining me. I hope you all had a great holiday season, whatever you celebrate, and that this fresh year is off to a good start for you. Today, I want to talk about feeling like a failure. I hope my topics thus far haven't depressed you to the point of unsubscribing. It's like just my mom listening to me now, but I do think this is an important topic within the grief experience. I'm an adult. I have the capacity to think logically and rationally. I am decently intelligent. But none of that matters when I let myself fall victim to my own shame spiral of failure or guilt. In my right mind, I know that nothing I could have said or done would have stopped my dad from ending his own life. I know that I only have the power to control my own actions. But not in my right mind, I wonder until I've driven myself mad, how I could have let this happen. If you've lost someone from natural causes like cancer or some other disease, maybe this is something you struggle with too. I just wouldn't know. Maybe you think you weren't as encouraging as you could have been while your loved one was going through treatment or something. If you're listening to this and you're an adult, You also have the capacity to step back and say to yourself, okay, I can't control everything. I did what I could and nothing more could have prevented this person from dying. I also think about the concept of failing when it comes to the actual process of grief. We live in a society in which it's impossible to not compare yourself to others. Social media impedes any desire you have to just live your own life. When I first lost my dad, I worried that I was failing at grieving. If I spent an entire afternoon crying, I thought to myself, all right, I'm definitely insane. This is not normal. I'm doing this wrong and so on. Because I knew other people who lost loved ones who were able to continue on with their lives. From what I saw, everything was seemingly okay according to their Instagram pages. I, on the other hand, quit my job packed up my life in Baltimore with my new husband and moved in with my mom for over a year. Again, with my new husband. It felt like the right decision to me, but you better believe I felt like a failure. I thought to myself, why is this how I dealt with my loss while other people carried on living and doing a great job at it? It's been over three years since I lost my dad and I still think about how I grieved and if I did a, quote, good job at it. I hate that you guys can't see my air quotes because I use them a lot. But I've spent the last three and a half years trying to understand what my future was going to look like without my dad and what implications this would have. My relationships have changed with people. Some have gotten better and some have gotten worse. 
It's also sparked a curiosity in me to want to better understand others' experience with grief and loss. I've been to a few support group sessions and the stark differences between me and the person next to me don't matter because we both know what it's like to have our heart shattered. As horrible and as isolating as grief is, it can bond you with a complete stranger, someone with whom I would otherwise not have anything in common. How is this concept of isolation broached with kids when it comes to grief? It's so big and daunting, I I genuinely don't understand how a child could even begin to outline what the experience is like for them. I process this idea a lot with my therapist right after losing my dad. Don't ask me why, because I was on the cusp of 27 when it happened, so I was neither a child nor did I have children of my own to worry about. But I thought about it at length. I was able to articulate how I was feeling. I was able to clearly identify why I felt angry, and I was keenly aware of the dramatic change in my psychological state. What if I was a young child or even a teenager who doesn't quite yet have the bandwidth for comprehending such profound loss? After experiencing what it was like to lose a close loved one, I wondered how I was going to talk about it or relate to other people, including my future children. I admire people who have dedicated their lives to helping children. And in my master's program, we talk a lot about how kids lack the intellectual capacity to really process deep, profound thoughts, or in this instance, life events like death. I know very little about children and their mental capacities, but I wonder how true this is. And I wonder how we as children's guardians or the people that kids look up to, how do we support them through their own grief experiences? As some of you know, I'm getting my master's degree in counseling and I'm going down the track of becoming what's called an MFT, which is marriage and family therapist. And this also encompasses individual and even group therapy. So I'm pretty certain that if I work with families, that means I'll be working with children. I'm extremely curious as to how a kid is going to talk about his or her experience with death in my office. I have no idea how to converse with them about it. Truly, I don't. Which makes me all the more grateful for my very first guest on this podcast. So today I'm so excited. I am joined by Devin Cousins, who is a licensed social worker based in Denver, Colorado. Um, She received her master's of social work from Metro State University in 2017 and has spent about the last seven years working with young people in mental health and the education world. And she and I have spoken a few times about broaching the subject of grief and death, for that matter, with children, which is something I'm very interested in. Um, She believes that education is a powerful tool that enables youth from marginalized communities to lift themselves out of poverty. 
Um, and she practices primarily through a trauma-informed, solution-focused brief therapy framework um, with a strengths-based lens. And that is a lot of psychological jargon. So I, I'm sure she's going to unpack that for us. So um, Devin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, so tell me a little bit about your work. Just, yeah, we'll start there. So um, right now I am a school social worker. So essentially I am a school-based mental health professional. A lot of what I do is crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, helping students and families process difficult challenges as they arise and working working with kids through academic challenges, behavioral challenges, all these different types of things in the moment. Uh, I think... A lot of people would be pretty surprised to learn of the types of um, emotional baggage that kids are tasked with bringing to school yeah. on a daily basis. Um, kids, I, I talk with kids who, you know, have parents that are incarcerated, uh, that are in foster care, mm -hmm. students that uh, have lost someone very close to them or they're struggling with addiction or, or any of those types of incidences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. So what is it like to talk to a kid about grief? I've, kids are so honest. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we give them enough credit. I think they absorb things better than adults do. And I think they're able to articulate things better than adults can because, because they're so honest. So yeah. what's it like talking to them? Man, it's really hard. I, I think oftentimes, uh, like students will share things with me that I have no idea how to relate to. Yeah. And yeah. they're so, to me, like overwhelmingly mm -hmm. upsetting or confusing. And, and kids just, like you said, they just have this very honest, like brutal mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> attack for, on yeah. the situation. And, and they're really, they cope so much better than really. Yeah. Like they, they, I, in my experience, at least yeah. the kids that I have worked with, they just take everything in stride in a way that's wow. like really incredible. And I think as a, you know, as a person who dedicates their life, their life and their work to keeping kids safe and make, you know, helping them to feel yeah. healthy and happy and in control of their life in some way, it is just really painful to see them hurting. Yeah. And that makes it challenging. Right. Yeah. I can imagine. So what would you say is the most challenging thing you've experienced when it comes to working through grief with your students? I think on a fundamental level, learning how to do that is, was the hardest part and continues to be the hardest part. Mm-hmm being really concerned that you won't say the right thing or you won't ask the right question or, you know, having all this fear about doing it right, right. Uh, when in reality there is no right way. Yeah. Uh, lucky for me, like you said, kids are brutally honest. Mm -hmm. And if, if what you're doing isn't working for them, they'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I've had students in the past tell me it's not really about someone telling me it's going to be okay or you know there's no like magical question that's going to make me feel better but just the fact that someone is listening and wants 
wants to be there for them and isn't yeah. afraid to sit with them in whatever that. their feeling is. Oh my God. That's so powerful. And mm-hmm. they like probably don't even know. They don't. How powerful <laughs> and how accurate that is that that's something adults struggle with is they need to find an answer. They need to find mm-hmm. the solution to make you feel better in that moment. And it's not, it doesn't it's, exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. On a practice level, losing students is definitely the most challenging thing for me specifically in just this year. I have lost two students, one in a, a car accident and one to gun violence. And I, I don't think I even could begin to explain what that feels like. Mm -mm. Uh, the student that we lost in June to gun violence was very close to me. Mm -hmm. He was very special to me. Yeah. And walking, trying to, you know, support his sister and his mom and our community in coping with that loss and then, you know, trying to deal with it on my own Mm -hmm. separately was a very weird experience. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you, on the one hand, you have a job to do and and your job is to support families and kids and whoever it is in the community that you are responsible for. And on the other hand, you're mourning and you're grieving and, you know, it's, you have to balance the two. Yeah. Um, And I remember when you and I spoke about this about a month ago, when you were telling me about this student that you were talking about this overwhelming sense of injustice and unfairness, which is something I have on a very, in the same vein, but in a very different way, obviously, I think what you are referring to is social injustice. Mine is just personal. And Mm -hmm. I remember sorting through this with my therapist ad nauseum Mm. because I felt so robbed by the world that like this happened to me. This was such a horrible, profound, horrendous loss. And I think when I heard you explain the, the feeling of social injustice and unfairness, it just, it really resonated with me. Yeah. You know, I, I had to come utterly face-to-face in a moment with this, what I felt was the overarching understanding that growing up in a community in America where children are expected to see their 18th birthday is a privilege. Mm. And I mean, that might sound really intense, but it's true. And when, like I said, when, when you've dedicated your whole life to helping kids make the best lives for themselves that they can and you love them like they're yours and then you know the world just eats them yeah and it's really painful and it feels it feels incredibly unfair Mm -hmm. I've had students say things to me before like you know I'm either gonna end up in jail or be dead by the time I'm 18 so who cares oh my god and and that's something real that happens that they say that more than one, you know, young person has said to me. And it just feels, like you said, just incredibly unfair then yeah. to to lose someone exactly the way they said they'd be lost. Yeah. It's, ugh, that's so hard. I can't. I have had no exposure 
to anything like that. And I, I, I can't imagine. Me neither. You know, yeah, that's like, why that's another thing. That's another layer that makes it so challenging is I can't relate. I can't relate to any of that. Right. And, and that makes it, you know, that makes it really tough. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. So work with me on this, but when you and I spoke about this and as we're speaking now, I hear and I think about like failure Mm -hmm. that you may or may not feel like a failure when you lose a student, when you have this perfect vision and this idea of what you're doing is helping and everything will be better. And, you know, having lost someone to suicide, I struggle with that every day. Granted, you didn't lose your students to suicide, but it's something that's so out of your control. And I very much believe that whether or not you call yourself a control freak, no one no one doesn't want to be in control. Everyone wants some sort of control, especially when it comes to their life or the life of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that, am I onto something there? Do you? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, in processing that loss and, you know, the other, the other losses that I've had from work, I think that's the primary overarching feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is like this is your job, right? You know, it's right. your job to protect, to protect, yeah. and to help students shape their lives, and and to feel like you couldn't get through to someone, or you didn't ask, you know, you didn't do the right thing, you didn't ask the right question. Right. There was something, one more thing you could have said that maybe would have stopped X from happening. To blah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it, I think I felt very strongly that I had let him down. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and that I was actively part of a system that certainly let him down. Right. And feeling, you know, just like there's something you could have done. And I think whether it's someone, you know, if you're in the helping professions, whether it's someone that you're working with or if it's a family member or any, you know, whatever the connection may be, there's just that lingering feeling of what, what if, what if, what if, what could I have done different? Right. A hundred percent. So how are you able to stop yourself from spiraling once that failure self-talk kicks in? What do you do? So one tool that I for sure used was kind of, so in in a style of therapy called uh, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. there's a certain tool that allows you to identify distorted thought patterns yep. Yep. and then challenge them with replacement thought patterns. And so this was something that I that I did do that I found somewhat helpful, which was, you know, I would write whatever the distorted thought was, you know, something like, someone that was better at their job wouldn't have allowed this to happen. Sure. And then on the other side, I would write the, you know, whatever I, the I rational wanted. rational thought. Whatever the more rational is. thought. Yeah. To, you know, to say something like, you loved this kid the best you could. Right. And. But that's so hard. Yeah. That's so hard to do. And even when, you know, even when your rational brain knows that you did your best and that you... Um, that you tried 
your irrational brain says so no much, you didn't yeah it's so much louder than <laughs> yes, the like it doesn't is. even matter what the thought is your irrational side portion whatever you want to call it is just it overpowers you sometimes and yes. it's so overwhelming and it hard to, you could be the most rational thoughtful intelligent person and it none of that matters yeah when it comes to this stuff so yeah so what I actually really found to be the most helpful was sharing those thoughts and fears with with someone that I knew would listen and yeah. like not judge me. Mm-hmm. I think if you're having feelings like that, like, oh, I failed. Oh, you know, it's because I'm not good at what I do or because, you know, whatever. If you, if you allow that to just stay within you, it turns into shame. So ugly. Which is this, which is just a really, really ugly and painful feeling and a tough thing to carry around. And, and so I, I spoke with especially a lot of people that I work with about, about it and let them know how I was feeling Mm -hmm. and they helped me process that. Yeah. And that was by far the most helpful thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So on a personal note, this is a question for myself. Mm -hmm. How do you not take this stuff home with you every day how do you do this uh I have not mastered that okay, great. that's what I wanted to hear I so go, I don't know answer. that you ever could especially when you do any type of work where it comes with the package to just see people in pain yeah. whether you know you're a doctor yeah or a therapist or a teacher or you know whatever when your life in when your professional life involves some level of helping people carry things, yeah, it just there's not really a whole lot of distinction mm-hmm. between what I do and who I am, I guess. Yeah, but I you don't s- have professional Devin and then home Devin Mm-mm. like that's <laughs> they just they go hand in hand. And and really anyone that tells you that you have to learn how to consolidate, yeah, is how, like. How, how right? How do you do that? And, but there are certain things that I do that I think help keep me sane. Okay. I'm super lucky to have a partner that yeah. gives me space when I need it, yeah. and you know lets me talk when I need yeah. that. I am a very ritualistic person. Mm-hmm. I you know there's a lot of research on habits and yeah. and how willpower is kind of like a bank and it loses money throughout the day yeah and so the more decisions that you can eliminate from your life the easier you know it can be to move through it so I follow like a pretty strict schedule and I and I eat a certain way and I kind of try to take out all the other things that can cause stress so that I have more of myself to give I guess that's amazing I mean you are talking to the queen of ritual and like I love the concept of traveling I want to say that I love it and that's the life I want but I really don't (laughs) I need my habits I need my wake-up time and everything everything to be in place which like is not feasible but yeah yeah I think also you know for it's really important not to like make decisions in a vacuum Mm -hmm. I think that's a really challenging thing especially being like often school-based mental health professionals are considered the expert on mental health in their building. So for me, there's one of me and there's 400 kids and then everyone else is an educator. 
right? How old? You're at a high school. Yes. Right. So, okay. you know, 14 to 19. That's a fun age. Super fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I think that was one of the scariest thing in the world was walking in on my first day and realizing that I was expected to be the expert. Totally. Yeah. And being, people were looking to you for answers. Yes. And being, thinking oh my gosh no yeah yeah (laughs) no but uh yeah I think processing stuff with with people is really important yeah thank you so much for being here this has just been so enlightening and awesome to talk to you and I just I'm so appreciative of your time yeah thank you it was fun thank you guys for joining me continue to take care of yourself and remember that there is an entire community of people who get you